0: Welcome to the RCIA Hollywood Podcast, coming to you weekly from Sunset Boulevard in the heart of Los Angeles. RCIA Hollywood is a program designed particularly for artists who have an interest in exploring the Catholic faith in a systematic way, with the possibility of being fully admitted into the church during the Easter season. RCIA stands for Rite of Christian Initiation of Adults. And it's a process that dates back to the very first centuries of Christianity. This Good Friday session on the Stations of the Cross in Art was led by Dr. Eric Hansen. The Stations of the Cross, to remind you, were, um, were a practice that developed in the Middle Ages after the Islamic forces had taken over the Holy Land and pilgrimages were virtually impossible to pursue, given the fact that not only would Muslims kill Christians in those days, but at the same time they they started a very careful campaign and an almost completely effective campaign of destroying the holy sites. To make up for the lack of pilgrimages and even had there not been non-Christian control of the holy places, keep in mind, travel in the Middle Ages was not what it is today. A trip to the Holy Land might take two, three months. It was hot, it was dusty, you could be killed by robbers, any number of things could happen. And so, consequently, it was difficult, if not impossible, for many reasons. Thus, the church in the 13th century did decide to install 14 major events, uh, pictures of which would be placed in the naves of churches throughout throughout Europe at that time. And then, of course, the custom spread. Now, the custom started as a monastic custom, where the monks would use uh, the different images. As a way, and they would be spaced enough so that one had to journey, one had to walk. If you did not walk, the Stations of the Cross did not have that momentum, that feeling. Remember, we are talking here about making history real. History has a direction. In order to link with history, one must also have a direction. And so one goes through the 14 major events. If you are fortunate enough to go to Israel you can visit the spots which are sometimes historically not very credible. But one must remember that what we are dealing with here is not historical accuracy, but rather the symbolism, but rather the meaning. For internalization of that historical event that we call our salvation, capsulized in those three important days that we are now celebrating, That kind of internalization does not need historical accuracy. It's as if you read a book literally to the point that you could not understand the book because it was so literal. If I say to you on a cloudy day, oh look, I just felt a drop and then it comes down raining and I say it's raining cats and dogs, you don't look up to see if it's collies and tabbies coming down on your head. Because if you do, you're just going to stand there and get wet. You get out of, the, out of the rain knowing what I told you. Thus, what we have here is a spiritual journey that does not depend on the importance of the historical accuracy. But where there is accuracy, I will certainly show you that. The fascinating thing about it all is that the Stations of the Cross actually begin, actually begin in one of the most commonplace locations in Jerusalem. One needs to climb these stairs, and by the way, they are not the original stairs of the Antonia Fortress, which our Lord would have mounted in order to reach the judgment seat of Pilate. The original stairs happen to be in Rome, and they are called the Scala Santa, if you wish to visit them. They are located near the Cathedral Church of St. John Lateran. Nevertheless, every day when the Franciscans, the custodians of the Holy Land, go to lead the pilgrimage, through what is roughly a quarter of a mile from one end of the city to the other and outside what was then the city gate, one must climb these stairs. Today the site is a volleyball court where Muslim children play. But this was the spot, some ten feet under the current ground level, where Pontius Pilate ultimately sentenced Jesus having washed his hands of the blood of this innocent man, as he says. how the group is now beginning to come together as we will do visually and as we watch them coming through the streets of Jerusalem. In most of the different locations, there are chapels. And the chapels are open for devotion during, uh, during the, uh, the, the different prayers and the different stops. Once again, keep in mind that we're dealing here with narrow streets. We are dealing with people who are Jewish, who are Muslim, who have no relationship to what we as Christians are doing here. Thus, the smell of spices, thus the smell of animals, thus the noise of shoppers, which would have been very much like that that Friday afternoon on what was probably the 4th of April in the year 36 A.D. Hurrying home for the Passover. People scurrying, grabbing their children. Tourists in town for the Passover because they've come for the pilgrimage to the temple, stopping, just as we do on the freeway, for an accident. Look, there's a condemned man, he's going to be killed. Oh, what fun, let's watch. The Pharisees and Sadducees laughing. Aha, you said that you would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. And the Roman soldiers, of course, an extra battalion, because this man was dangerous. The Via Dolorosa, which we started yesterday, is the sorrowful way. And it's not very much unlike the street as it would have been in the time of our Lord. About a third of the way through this journey, it will begin to rise as one goes to the higher level, which ultimately climaxes in the rock of Calvary, just outside the city gate of Jerusalem. The third station, Jesus falls the first time. Scripture does not say Jesus fell. And my Protestant friends say, aha, you are not scriptural. Does it stand to reason that a man who has said this morning was not eaten in hours, who has had no sleep, who has been crowned with thorns, the thorns as I showed you yesterday, six inches, pounded into his head, who's been whipped 39 times, and you will see what whipping can do to an individual like that, who is spit upon, who is beaten, who is humiliated. A man like that, can he carry a cross beam around his shoulder, it was not the teeth, it was what's called the patibulum. Okay, the, the, um, the vertical beam was permanently on the rock of Calvary. He would be hoisted up, 80 pounds carried over his shoulders. Is it not logical he would fall not once, not twice, not three times, but many times? Of course. So even if it's not it's necessarily logical, I think the triplet formula so much. Yes. And remember, Jesus falling is also, in a sense, a meditation on our falling. Because this is our journey as much as it is Christ's journey. There's a mysticism about it. There is a symbolism about it. Even the angels of heaven weep at the death of the Son of Man as they watch him down. As one turns a corner, the site where Jesus met his mother, Again, when one meets the woman who gives you life, and she, and inside again the chapel, she greets him. How would any of you, a mother, feel about your son knowing what's going to happen and she's already seen him in this condition? This is the woman who bore him in her womb. Keeping in mind, as I told you yesterday, 48 hours from now, we celebrate Jesus being planted in her womb by the power of the Holy Spirit. Isn't it amazing, huh? He rises from the dead, and then suddenly he's back in her womb because we had to move the feast to the Annunciation. Only we Catholics would do it, and I'm so happy we did because it gives me a whole new way of looking at our faith, certainly. Jesus, at this point, barely able to, to follow the cross. You could probably guess, if you could not read the Latin, what this station is because you notice it has a pointed Gothic arch as if it's supporting Simon of Cyrene, plucked out of the crowd. taken. him to help bear the patibulum, he carried it for a while. This is a historical man because his two sons, Alexander and Rufus, later became heads of the church in Rome. But what's really interesting is the statue, not only being historically inaccurate because it shows the cross as a T, but more to the point, Simon was black. He was from Cyrene, which is in North Africa. But in a very politically unaware age, a historical age, you'll notice he looks significantly different as if he were in fact Jewish which he may well have been, but certainly not of that complexity. The next station is, of course, the one that has elicited the most controversy. For we are told that out of a house, along the Via Dolorosa, suddenly appears a woman who, taking pity on this suffering criminal, is suddenly takes her veil and she places it on his face to wipe off the blood, and the dirt, and the sweat. Um, St. Veronica, Veronikos, the true image. Jesus responds to her with love. He's dying, he's in a terrible condition, and yet even now, in a sense, his last miracle before he dies. He leaves the imprint of his face upon her cloth. This is the church on the site of Veronica's house. The door, and in every station there will always be, of course, the number. In this case, the only station which is written in Arabic, as well as in Latin, because Muslims have great devotion, ironically, to St. Veronica. I'm not exactly sure why, but I've been told this. We are told that this is, in fact, part of the house, and she comes out. Now, again, I don't have time, nor is it necessarily important to talk about Veronica's veil, as it's called, which, by the way, is a relic which is held in St. Peter's, in the Vatican, uh, in a chapel uh, in one of the great pillars that hold up the dome, in this case. Uh, with the image of our Lord, the suffering image of our Lord. It is not, by the way, shown regularly, um, but it is shown once in a while, and there are several images which do show, more or less, what it was supposed to look like. But what is, what is again, as Barbara said, every, much of this is mystical, much of this is symbolic. And again, the symbolism is sometimes richer than the historical fact. That Jesus is still, in a sense, directed toward others. He's not dwelling on his own suffering, he's given to her something of himself to the end he is given he's going to give his body and his life within an hour on the cross and yet he is giving her the image of his face this beautiful image that it would be remembered and again let's not be tied down to the historical details wouldn't you like the image of Jesus' face and maybe in this case not on your veil or on your coat but perhaps on your soul or perhaps in your mind Maybe that's the way you have to think. As the road begins to turn upward, the seventh station commemorates the second fall. And there is a chapel there, once again, operated by the Franciscans, which shows this. And each time he falls, he is whipped repeatedly. He is picked up, thrown against a wall, in order to loosen his, his consciousness so that he would come back enough. Because you don't want a man dying on his way to the cross. Salvation must be achieved. Jesus must say it is finished, and it must be finished on Calvary. The eighth station is is one of the simplest. It is a stone on the wall. The women of Jerusalem have followed him all this way. They are weeping. He leans against the wall. Tradition says on this spot, Jesus Christ, in Greek, leans against the wall as he says to the women, weep for yourselves and your children, not me, a throwback to To the Gospel of Luke that we saw yesterday, when Jesus reached over Jerusalem. Um, this is a bishop's pilgrimage, and it shows you the actual area of the wall where this occurs. Bishops regularly, by the way, make this this uh, pilgrimage. And if you go to Israel, and as I said, we are going to do a modest pilgrimage to the Holy Land, and we will do this. We will have a private, private, um, uh, a, a private uh, go through of the Stations of the Cross, and you'll get the feeling. There's a shop just down the street that sells cumin powder. I don't know if you know what cumin powder is, but it's very spicy. You can smell it. It almost invades your nostrils. I have to think that was, again, part of the smell. It's amazing what the olfactory senses will give you when you're going through this, and how you're reliving this, and then bring your faith into it. It's an incredible experience. The ninth station is on the slopes of Calvary. Jesus falls one last time as he relaxes or rests against the pillar for a moment. In the back is the courtyard to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And stations 10-14 through 14 are indeed in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, not the original one of Constantine, built in the 4th century, but the Crusader Church of the 12th century. Uh, recently repaired, unfortunately still in great disrepair for many, many reasons. The plaza in the front takes you in to the two major parts of the Church, the only reason I ever showed the picture of this church, because artistically it is not a significant structure. Actually, two reasons. Number one, though this building is a mishmash of 15 different denominations, Christian denominations, each arguing over who owns what. The Catholics have Station 12. The Greeks have Station 11. Uh, the Armenians have this. The Copts have this. The Syrians have this. And it goes on and on and on, huh? And any one given hour, you can hear 10 different liturgies going on at the same time, competing, out-shouting each other. And if you're really lucky, you can watch a Franciscan monk sometimes beat up a Coptic priest, because (laughs) it's really gone to that as well, although things are significantly better now. It's the faith of the people. These are crosses going back to the 15th and 16th centuries. Someone said to me last night, Have you been to any of the Marian sites? And yeah, I have been the one that blew me away was Guadalupe if you've ever been there, I went totally skeptical do you know what convinced me? it wasn't the tilma so much though I know the tilma is miraculous because I've done a real study of it I knelt among people who walked on their knees for miles with their babies in their hand I not only saw faith, I felt it I don't know if you've ever been an experience where you feel it you feel that you're wrapped in faith I was kneeling in front of that image with all these people around, I knew it was there the same thing is here this is, a, this is the faith. These are our ancestors. These are our spiritual grandparents and great-grandparents, thanks to the communion of saints. Under the large rotunda is the tomb of Jesus. Under this small area is Calvary. Calvary being an outcropping of rock means that the chapel is on the second floor of the church. Remember, Scripture says, in the garden near the spot of the crucifixion, there was a tomb. The church obscures the rock of Calvary today. So it's not able to be seen as it was. But this model gives you a very good idea of what we're talking about, the hill on which Jesus died. Outside of the city walls, there is an outcropping, which some believe is the actual Calvary. Historically, that cannot be verified. Nevertheless, it probably is a far more inspirational site than the real one, which is so covered with marble and vigil candles that one cannot make out what the tomb was. Notice the two eyes of the Calvaria, the skull, which is word, by the way, if you know Spanish, calavera, skull, okay? Calvaria, the place of the skull, the two eyes, or gabata, the same thing in Hebrew, huh? This is the rock of Calvary, or what's left of it after souvenir seekers took their their, um, reminders back home with them. Again, it's covered in glass, very difficult to get to. And then there is a chapel built above it, and on the chapel we resume the Stations of the Cross, Station 10, Jesus is stripped of his garments. Mary Magdalene and the others, horrified by the sight of seeing Jesus humiliated, stripped. Nothing now between him and death. Jesus is nailed to the cross, the 11th station, part of the slope of Calvary, the central part of which is a Greek Orthodox chapel, under which is the actual spot on Calvary in which the cross was raised. Again, one can see the cross... We're glass opening there, and you can actually touch. You can actually touch the um, the rock through a hole in a metal disc. It's just enough to get your hand in. It's not enough to get your hand and a Swiss Army knife. And I won't <laughs> tell you why I tried, <laughs> but I did try. I'm often asked, um, "What's our earliest image of the cross?" I'm going to be writing a book, by the way, on the history of the cross. It's going to be my next book and it's fascinating. It may not be appropriate on a Good Friday to show you this, and yet in another way, it may be a wonderful confirmation of what our faith is really about, because this is the oldest image of the cross in all of art. It happens to be a blasphemous one. It was found on the room, on the wall of a room of a schoolhouse on the slopes of the Palatine Hill in Rome. The schoolhouse was to train court pages, young men who would serve the emperor and his family. Apparently one of them, whose name was Alexa Manos, was a Christian. The other boys, and you know how cruel high school boys can be, the other boys got wind of it. And so they decided to make fun of Alexamenos. And so on this graffiti on a wall, which excavators found in the early 20th century, we have in Greek, if you know Greek, you can see it, Alexamenos Celebrateu. Alexamenos worships his God. He was a Christian. His God is a crucified jackass. Thus, the earliest image of the instrument of our salvation is a blasphemous broadside. Now, I have someone say, that's a horrible thing. No, it isn't. The cross, which is, I hope I get this right, um, folly to the Greeks and a stumbling block to the Jews. Greeks seek wisdom. Jews seek signs and miracles. But we look to the cross of Jesus Christ. Or to put it another way, more simply, the world hates the cross. So why should we be surprised? The oldest image of the cross is the world mocking the cross. Yeah? Interestingly enough, the other, and, and by the way, that one, in case you're about the date, not the blasphemous one, that's about 150 AD, when the Christian community is growing in Rome. In fact, that's the year when the first tombstone is placed on the tomb of St. Peter, uh, which is now under St. Peter's, huh? The other one, around the same time, is this signet ring. You can see it. It's not blasphemous, but unfortunately, it's an image created not by a mainstream Christian faith, but by the Gnostics. And it shows Jesus on the cross, yet it shows his body slipping away. The Gnostics had a very weird idea about the body was totally evil, and that one had to have secret knowledge, Gnosis, in order to escape the body and find salvation. Thus, Jesus is using his Gnosis and and bringing his his followers. Again, its gold. It's onyx. So it must have been some very important official. Jesus is taken down in the 13th station the Rossa, of weeping Mary. And he is taken to the tomb, taken off Calvary and placed on anointing stone which people today still venerate as the spot as you can see. A very typical day a very palpable faith being expressed by the people uh, of, of Jerusalem. And he is placed in a tomb. Now, Anyone who can reconstruct this tomb simply from their faith, uh, I congratulate because it's very difficult having been encased in this monstrous vehicle uh, which was uh, erected only in 1808. There are two rooms as in every typical Jewish tomb. The first one is called the Chapel of the Angel. It was here that John and the women met the young man dressed in white. Now, remember the gospel says there was a rolling stone. I don't mean Mick Jagger, okay? I mean a rolling stone or whatever it was. The rolling stone is gone. Where did it go? Souvenir hunters in the Middle Ages. They left a very small piece, which is now here, under glass and is alarmed as well. Now, in this case, here is a tomb outside Jerusalem, and this is the best idea of what it was like when there was no church yet there. And there is the rolling stone. Who will move this stone, asked the women when they came on the Sunday morning. And it's in a garden. In a sense, this was more of a prayerful atmosphere for me than the tomb. And you could still even move the stone. We tried. We couldn't do it. But I mean, we could try. And then there's the garden. And of course, the gardener would be there as well. The inner part of the tomb in the church has the burial couch. This is indeed historically... The tomb of Jesus. There is very, very little, if any doubt, about this. But once again, perhaps we need to see the interior of the tomb outside Jerusalem to give you an idea of the nature of the tomb opening. He is not here. He is risen. Jesus dies and is placed in the tomb. The man who betrays him returns the thirty pieces of silver, which cannot be returned to the temple treasury. It is blood money, and it goes to buy a field, for strangers who die in Jerusalem. Akil Dama blood field. It's still there today and it is still used for anonymous strangers who come to Jerusalem and if they die there, they are buried here. Akil Dama is still there and it's, it's next to the city dump. Artists have expressed the mysteries of these three days in ways that are extraordinary. We are talking about these three days as trans time, across time, across space, as we unite with our Holy Father in the Colosseum as he concludes his stations, but also across all cultures. And I thought you might be interested in seeing what I consider some of the best religious art that comments on both the liturgies and the events of these days, and I'm going to talk a little bit more, as I conclude, about the events in terms of what liturgically you can expect today. You may not like these images, but again, they are different takes on what the internalization, on the part of some of the most creative people in our society, what they're able to provide for us. To give you a couple of examples here. This is Christ awaiting trial. It's done by a Los Angeles artist. Now, some of you might say it looks like a woman. Some of you say it looks like a man if you do not consider the historical record, which indicates clearly and without any doubt that Jesus Christ was and is a man, perhaps maybe the uh, the ambiguity has something to say to you. That in Christ there is no male or female. And I'm not a liberal in that regard. Please understand what I'm saying. But again, great religious art in being ambiguous can sometimes bring out the best in our own thoughts and and confirm in our faith. A modern work from Spain is a photograph of the suffering Christ. Perhaps it becomes more poignant when I tell you that it was uh, done by an artist who has since died, who, shortly before creating this work, um, was diagnosed as having AIDS. The wound of Jesus in this case is not unlike some of the different kinds of sores and lesions that occur. in in some of the advanced cases of uh, AIDS. A Swedish artist in 1970 created this crucifixion. Crucifixion puts Jesus in a box. He is hemmed in by the hatred of his society. Yet by the strength of his endurance and by his willingness to die for us His arms reach out to humanity, and they break beyond the confines of the box. And he is, of course, the typical Nordic. In his hand, there is a sparrow. For, of course, God the Father knows every sparrow. By name, I suppose you might say. He knows the stars by name, but probably the sparrows by name. The great Japanese silkscreen artist, Sadao Watanabe, gives us the Asian take on this. And I keep looking back at the face particularly because with no more than eight lines we're given a symphony of emotion and pain. And yet, do you notice one very interesting thing? This Jesus really doesn't have eyes or if there are eyes, they are closed. This is the Jesus who dies more than it is the Jesus who is the God who enjoys the cross. And we don't have time to talk about eyes open or closed. So it, I think it's the arches stand out in this image so much. Yeah. You know, the arches on his chest and then, and then the arches of the cross and they triple air. there. You notice they're turned around. Yeah, the arches on him are upside down. So and they, yeah. What do you think it means? I mean, do not know. And I never noticed the arches. But again, that's what great religious art does. You can have 20 people in a room and you have 20 different interpretations. What got me was the faces are so simply constructed. There are four or five lines, no more than that. And yet, look at what you can do with so little. Multimum parvo, much and little. This is one of my favorite. I wish I could afford to, to own it. This is from Polynesia. This is a Tahitian cross. Mm-hmm. Beautifully carved. Again, I see a great deal of pain. Here the ambiguity is whether the eyes are open or closed. Is he the dying savior or the dying man, or is he the redemptive savior who does indeed die, and yet, with that little glitter of life in his eye, says, these are the coming attractions. For I will not be dead always. I will be back. From Mexico, woven straw. It's amazing how a face with so much emotion can be made out of something so relatively simple. These are available in in cities all over Mexico. This is done by a Maori tribesman in New Zealand. It won sixth place in the Jesus 2000 contest. Remember the big art contest we had during the Jubilee year, the millennium year? It won sixth place. Now again, um, I, um, I know that if my boss saw this, I'd be fired. He'd go, what is it? And I would tell him, no I wouldn't because I don't want to lose my job, but I'll tell you what I would tell him, I'd say, You don't want to look at it because you don't want to take the time to put anything into it. You put into it, you get out of it what you put into it. And so, what do you do? I see here everything I mentioned about the confusion, the chaos, the smells, the sweat, the dirt, the animal dung on the street. Everything that Christ went through as he walked up those very narrow streets in Jerusalem. A sister, a nun, a Catholic nun from Haiti, did this crucifixion. There is a political element here, the boat people. This was done shortly after a a boat filled with 245 refugees from Haiti on their way to Miami was turned around and on its way back it drowned and virtually everyone was killed. And I'm not trying to make a political statement here. I'm simply saying it's another rendition of a crucifixion. This is undoubtedly my favorite. Would somebody like to um, venture what kind of an artist did this? Looks hmm? like a prisoner. It? Would you believe it if I told you a devout Orthodox Jew? This is a devout. Yeah, a Holocaust survivor exactly. Thank you. Maria. You know, when people say there's no great modern religious art, I'm sorry, but you know, Rubens, Rembrandt, wonderful, great, Caravaggio, fantastic, but. We have to have the art that speaks to our time, that makes that what happened two thousand years ago come back in a way that that nothing else can do, huh? I lay I say the best artwork or my favourite artwork for the end, a collage. By his wounds we are healed. And what are his wounds? (coughs) These are newspaper clippings of sexual assaults, child molestation, rape, devery criminal activity of every kind. Murder, executions, wars, famine, disease, pestilence. Everything you can imagine. And in the middle is a Christ who looks more sad than anything. And notice what his crown of thorns would be. And you're probably looking at different aspects of what I'm looking at. Yeah, the machine gun, the AK-47s. And again, you have to be careful with work like this because you don't want to raise the political idea. Someone will say, well, you're trying to take my guns away. I'm not. I'm going to making a statement. Or the artist is making a statement. It's in America. It's <clears throat> when you venerate the cross today, uh, during the ceremony, please keep in mind that you are not honoring a piece of wood. You are honoring the man who took on everything that you can see that makes up this, this um, this idea, this this collage. And what you are honoring is that we saw the one from Sweden. Remember, society tried to keep him in that box, so they crucified him. You are not honoring the wood. You are honoring the man who busts through that box, and in so doing, if you notice how this is a centripetal work, it blows outward because by his death it's all going it's like a shot a laser shot comes and blows up and when you venerate that cross by kissing the feet of Christ or kissing the wood of the cross which is not done because we are worshipping that wood or even worshipping that image that is pagan to be blunt about it but you are honoring that man who on that skull rock burst through those bounds and that's the important thing in closing I would be remiss if I didn't show you what I believe is the greatest image of our Lord. And scientists can argue all they want. I know that the Holy Shroud of Turin is true and real. If science could prove its reality, and suddenly half a billion people became Catholic, what would their faith be worth? For faith is the evidence of things unseen. And I believe that it was God who had a hand in the scientific tests. Which were indeed skewed, and even scientists admit that. If you don't know what the shroud is, I suggest you go to Huntington Beach to the Holy Shroud Museum, which tells you a lot about it, because I don't have the time to do it here. The front and back image of a man who has been tortured. The front and back image created by the way in which Jesus was wrapped in a new piece of cloth brought to the tomb by Joseph of Arimathea. Until the year 1890, when it was first photographed, all that could be seen were faint images. When the first photographer took the photos and realized that turning the positive negative, one could get a very decisive image. Suddenly, we began to understand what Christ suffered for us. Thus, what we get is the head of a man whose head is covered with stains of blood, and that's actual blood, as science has shown. The blood of Jesus Himself. Exactly like that which we take at Mass when we drink of the cup. And thus we turn it to negative. It is a man whose nose is broken, whose cheek is swollen, whose hair is matted. This is the man who, in your liturgy today, you will venerate on the cross, and this is how he will look. This is not, I'm not doing this to be macabre. I'm not doing it to be gruesome. I'm not doing it to throw guilt and say, look at what he did for us, therefore, what shall we do to him? This is the historical record that transcends 2,000 years of church history and of salvation. The crown of thorns was a cap, it was a baseball cap like device, so that it not only wreathed the head, it literally covered the entire head, including, as you can see the back from the blow up, over 40 different thorns, each pounded in with a mallet so that blood would come out. Blood would also come through the eyes and through the nose. You will notice that in the long shot and in the detail, the shoulder is gone from the rubbing of the wood of the cross, which literally took off about two inches of the shoulder. So that while he started carrying the cross across his shoulders, as he became more tired, it was carried across one. And imagine 80 pounds of rough wood a quarter of a mile, joggled by people, constantly rubbing up against your skin. The whipping on the back, 39 lashes, 40 minus 1. So intricately indicated that no artist could have forged this. In fact, so precise that when one studies the wounds, we can even figure out the type of whip that was used with small leather balls which not only tore the skin but dug deep into the body. This is the man we venerate today. A man who was a carcass, an unrecognizable carcass, a man of sorrows, huh? as the prophet would say, repulsive to all. His hands showed us the marks of the nails, not in the palm, but in the wrist, in order to be held up on the cross. This was the Roman practice, and thus it was done to him. At the same time, the nails in the feet, not in the feet themselves, but rather in the ankle area. Profusion of blood coming from the left foot. And interestingly, ten years ago, there was a tomb of a man discovered in Jerusalem who had been crucified. Not Jesus, certainly. And when they actually took the bones out of the box in which he had been buried... They found his ankle bone with the nail still through it. Apparently, his relatives could not get it out. Proof again of the shroud's veracity in this particular case. The wound in the side, produced by a Roman centurion who came to believe, a man who tradition names as St. Longinus. And again, the blood, and again, a mixture of blood and water. Hence, in Mass, at Mass, we mix water and wine, one of the many uh, reasons. Uh, we do that, huh, is this particular symbol. Again, the shroud is so specific that in a pre-medically sophisticated time period, it is amazing that the wound shows between the fifth and sixth ribs in order to pierce the pericardial sac in the region where, in fact, both blood and water come out. This is the man of sorrows we will venerate today. Archaeologists have said this is how our Lord would have looked on the cross given everything that the Shroud says. Man of sorrows repulsive to all. And yet, tomorrow night, in the darkness and the bareness of a church, as we will start spreading the fire, and tomorrow night, in the narthex of the church, we will remember one more time the dead man, the man who died for us, A fire will be lit. And something wonderful will happen. And I debated about saying this, but I said it to one of our local bishops in a talk a few weeks ago, and he said, you're the only man brave enough to say it. If you are going tomorrow night, follow the priest through the ceremony. It is the most beautiful ceremony we have in the church. They will take you either outside or in the lobby, depending on the weather. They will first of all light a candle. A candle. We call it the Paschal Candle. The Paschal Candle will remain in churches. It is usually lit for baptisms. It will be lit for funerals as well. It is a symbol of Christ's life. There are inscriptions on it. There will be the year. There will be the sign of the cross. There will be the Alpha and the Omega. Jesus first and last. There will be a number of other beautiful ornamental devices. The candle will be blessed. How will it be blessed? The priest will bless a huge basin of holy water. It will be holy water. He will take the candle before he lights it. And I could never teach this in high school, and I always bitterly (coughs) resented this fact because of small minds. (coughs) Listen to what he will say in the prayer. He will take that candle. It just gives me goosebumps to think about this, and I think this is fantastic. He will take the candle, and three times he will take this humongous candle, and he will penetrate the water and stir it around. Listen to the prayer. For the prayer will say, among other things, it's too long to go through the whole thing, from this action may new life come. Now, you're all adults in here, so think of what this is reminiscent of. A large phallus-like instrument penetrating the water that out of this act may come what? New life. It is the sexual act in a symbolic way. Now, I have friends who say, Eric, you're dirty. I'm not dirty, this is my (laughs) church. But you know, aren't we grown up enough as Catholics to understand sexuality within the marriage act is beautiful? Look at that beautiful child. I thought Tim was going to say immaculately conceived. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> but the point is. Yeah, yeah. Oh no, no, no. Wait, I got one more. Okay, but do you see the point? It's a what? What's the symbol of Easter? Rabbits. Do I have to tell you what rabbits are known for? <laughs> Eggs. All right. Do you see what? Do you see what we're celebrating? This guy who is a, no disrespect intended, is a meatball on a cross. What happens? Suddenly, new life. Spring. Today is the first day of spring. The, look at the flowers outside. Bunny rabbits are mating. Young people. Remember what did is, what is Chaucer say? We heard it last night. When young men's fancies turn to pilgrimage, among other things. Right? I always, always gave out. When I taught at Catholic High School, I always gave out more detentions in early spring. Really, because of what's going on. And I'm not being flippant. Understand, this is the feast of life. How can we not get excited about that? It's the church saying sexuality is not dirty unless you make it dirty. It's beautiful. And it must, (coughs) life must come out of death. Have you seen these hills which eight months ago were barren and and dark and burned out? Have you seen the beauty eight months later? Or look at the beauty nine months later. That's what tomorrow is about. And then we walk in. He lights the the paschal candle. After having given the water the new life, three times he will stop and genuinely Christ, our light. Thanks be to God. And then people will come with their candles. And candle will go to candle, to candle, to candle. And that dark, barren church will suddenly come alive with light. The organ will start playing. The candle will be placed in its holder, and the priest will go to the altar. And for the first time since February 6th, If he's a good guy, he'll say, Gloria in excelsis, the lights will come on, the organ will swell, the lilies, symbol of life and fertility, will come about again. And suddenly, new life. And everyone will be, do I have to be here? It's two hours (laughs) long. But that's where we can tell them, because that's why we're part of the reason we're here. If we can't bring back what we get here, then why are we here? If we can't give more than what we get here, that's really the important thing. See, you know what it's about. I don't want to leave you with the man of the shroud. I want to leave you with Isabel Pichek's great mural of the risen Christ on the La Placita Church, downtown Los Angeles. Mm. This is what I want. There's also a copy of Calvary Cemetery. it's one, one that's in, Las in Las Vegas? Is it the same oh, one? Please don't ruin the moment. Is right. right. it Hungarian? It's the same yeah. art. Okay. The same so but see, this is the one I love. This is the memory you need to take away with you when you go tomorrow. We're not there yet, huh? Tonight we have to venerate that bloody man on a cross, nailed and all that. But this is, this is where we're going. And you notice he looks up. Why? Because he looks to the future. There is finally a 15th station of the cross. I'm not going to show it to you. John Paul, John Paul the Great, uh, established it. It's Jesus rises from the dead. <coughs> because you see, Christianity can't end with a dead body in the tomb. If you know what I'm saying. Because in a sense, it's almost hypocritical then to take. To, 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 in a sense, symbolize the sexual act the next day. You can't do that. Okay, in closing, I got one quick thought. What I showed you crosses time, crosses space, crosses culture. I want to suggest for your meditation today something that came to me the other day, which I'm going to be doing when I get to, to my parish this afternoon. If you had to put together 14 stations of the cross for your life, what would they be? How many times would you fall? <clears throat> Whose face would you put on somebody's veil? How many times have you met your mother and she may have been disappointed with you or sad for you? How many times... Did you make yourself vulnerable to others and they emotionally stripped you and left you there? How many times have you been on a cross or carried the cross and maybe you still are today? Have you ever found the repose of the tomb? Maybe you're still looking for that 15th station and maybe it's not quite there. My second thought when I woke up this morning was that four years ago today, at 11 o'clock in the morning, I sat in a room in a hospital. And I heard a very young doctor, who had just performed a biopsy on my mom, tell me that she had cancer. It would not have been all that distressing except for the fact that it was in the same room that 13 years earlier another doctor told me that my father who had had a stroke earlier that day was going to die. So Good Friday has a couple of different connotations for me. Through a year and a half, my mother went through her 14 stations. I was Simon, I was Mary, I was Veronica, I was sometimes the Jews, I was sometimes the Romans, I was sometimes Pilate who just wanted to wash my hands and the whole thing. And she finally had a stroke from all the chemo on Thanksgiving of 2005 and I felt that I had been put on a cross and there was nothing that would save me she was always worried about her purse even after she had a stroke and we stood in the emergency room as they were working on her and I was holding her purse and as a guy I never really wanted to hold purses and I felt always kind of horrified in doing it, but I did. And I knew that these were her last days. I went over to her, I spoke to her in Italian, and I told her pretty much everything I wanted her to know, which was important. So she knows. And a nurse came up to me. Nurses at Mission Hospital down in Michigan were great. The nurse came up to me and she said, my gosh, you look like the loneliest person in the world. And I'll never know to this day why I gave her the answer, I did. But I looked at her and said, I'm not alone. I think that's the lesson of today. That even if you're on the other cross next to Jesus, he's there too. But the joy and the consolation is, tomorrow night, he's giving you the fire, he's giving you the light, he's giving you the joy. So I hope what I've given you this morning may give you an opportunity to really understand why you're here. And I would ask you, please pray for the Modges Institute, please pray for the RCIA program, and please pray for those of us who want to give so much, because we know that there is so much to give. So thank you all for your patience and for your listening. Thanks for joining us, and we hope you'll join us again next week. Until then, take care and God bless.